0: This is a podcast that encompasses stories about the origins of just about anything and everything. Information, theories, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, just about anything really. Visit the website with the show notes www.bizarrebizarre.info forward slash origins. looking for a podcast that's more challenging, more stimulating intellectually? Well, here's the place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Origins episode 9. This one's entitled End of the World Files. And this lead story comes from www.greendaily.com and it's written by Patrick Mezger. Predicting the end of the world isn't just for fringe religion enthusiasts and 16th century Frenchmen anymore. It's become something of a national sport. From nuclear war to mass zombification and brain-eating, there are all kinds of ideas about nastiness that could see humans joining the dinosaurs in the trash can of history. So, is the planet, or at least our continued presence on it, really in peril? The Green Daily website takes a look at a few of the more popular scenarios and gives you the straight scoop. End of the World Files, number one, The Singularity, The Basics. You may not know what The Singularity is yet, but chances are you'll probably be hearing a lot more about it soon, particularly since the term figures in a new TV series, The Sarah Connor Files, and an upcoming film, The Singularity is Near. Simplified enormously, it means the day when machines become more intelligent than we are and in turn begin creating even smarter machines without our guidance. Although the concept of our own techno-offspring run amok goes back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, it was professor and writer Vernon Binge who coined the term singularity to describe the moment when we look into our monitors and something brilliant and self aware looks back at us. Potential impact. This one could go really either way if it actually happens, as it's pretty much impossible to predict what a machine superintelligence might want to do. Ideas about the outcome range from a golden age of human computer interaction to have you seen Terminator 3? In terms of timing, many researchers think given the current rate of progress in artificial intelligence, computers could be thinking for themselves in 30 years or less. The optimists at the Singularity Institute of Artificial Intelligence believe that superhuman intelligence would lead to superhuman problem-solving with machines curing disease, fixing the environment and helping us to conquer distant stars. On the other hand, Binge's original 1993 essay postulates a worst-case scenario where the physical extinction of the human race is one possibility, but not even the scariest possibility. Certainly if they wanted to, the supermachines could make pets out of us, or slaves, or just get rid of us altogether. He calls them the last invention man needs, to which we might add the unspoken corollary that they would be the first invention that doesn't need us. What are we doing about it? Well, encouraging it for the most part. Research into artificial intelligence isn't going to stop. And with all the other crises looming, we can use all the brainpower we can get. Just keep your fingers crossed and be nice to your Roomba. Now, this white website gives each of these potential um, end-of-world files a rating, and it's called the Disastrometer, and it rates this one 1 out of 10. I gather that's a very low possibility. It may never happen, and even if it does, who's to say that the machines would treat us any worse than we treat each other, says the author of the article. End of the World Files Number 2 Rocks from Space The Basics 2008 marks a century since a meteorite maybe a hundred feet in diameter blew up over Tunguska in Siberia with the force of more than 300 Hiroshima bombs. As we've only come to understand in the last few decades events like this and much bigger have happened many times before and will certainly happen again. Comets and asteroids can, and do, hit the Earth. So what do we do when a rock the size of Texas comes hurtling towards us with no Bruce Willis to nuke it into tiny pieces? Potential impact. Impact is the right word, and it could range from a little rock that blasts through your roof and crushes your new flat-screen TV to a massive extinction-level event, like the one that probably took out the dinosaurs. While a strike of that magnitude is unlikely during an average human lifetime, the latest research suggests that even an asteroid a couple of hundred feet in size could kill millions if it hit an urban area. Calculating the probability of a dangerous strike is hard to do because we really don't know exactly how many near-Earth objects are out there especially relatively small ones like the thing that flattened a sizable parcel of Siberian real estate. What are we doing about it? More than we were, but probably not as much as we should, Following a spike in public awareness after the release of two blockbuster disaster from space films in the 90s, astronomer David Morrison famously observed that the total number of people looking for doomsday rocks was no more than a lunch shift at a McDonald's restaurant. Not wanting to be responsible for the end of the world, in 1998 the US Congress tasked NASA with locating 90% of near-Earth objects more than 0.6 miles across. In 2005, funds were allocated to search for objects of 328 feet across or larger, of which there may be more than 300,000 out there. But it's a slow process. Binding is only the first part of the equation. The second issue is what we would, should actually do if we were to locate an object that's headed on a collision course with Earth. Nuking the thing as in the movies is considered by most experts to be a stupid and dangerous idea, even if we had the ability to do it, which we don't. In fact, right now, there's no practical plan in place to divert an incoming asteroid or comet. Other possible courses of action include positioning a heavy spacecraft near the object in the hope that the gravitational pull will change its course, or just figuring out where it's going to hit and evacuating the area now the disaster meter rating the disaster meter rating on this website is 4 out of 10 the odds are long but the consequences could be incredibly severe end of the world files number 3 peak Oil. The basics. Peak oil is the idea that we're running low on fossil fuels, with interesting implications for our way of life. The idea is not that every well will suddenly run dry, just that we won't have enough oil to meet demand, meaning the end of the cheap, readily available energy on which our civilization is based. While peak oil won't stop the world from spinning, it could have Mad Max-like implications for industrial society. Consequences could include widespread blackouts, the virtual collapse of transportation infrastructure in industrialised countries, and a shortage of petroleum-based chemical fertilisers necessary to grow most of our food. Potential Impact Peak oil is confusing because it's fertile ground for conspiracy theorists who fall into two principal camps. Those who believe that peak oil is here and that government and big business are lying about it and those who think we're nowhere near peak oil and the government and big business are lying about that. However, there's growing evidence that if peak oil isn't already upon us, it soon will be. Oil prices are hovering near all-time records Global demand is higher than ever, and OPEC is saying they won't, or maybe can't, increase production. In the meantime, no new major oil fields are being found. Recently, Jean de Vanderveer, the CEO of Shell Oil, essentially went on record as saying that peak oil was a virtual certainty within eight years or so. However, the timing of the peak oil won't really be known until it's too late. It's like when your gas gauge hits the red line, you know you're in trouble, but you can't be exactly sure when you're going to have to get out and walk. Still, the potential impact can't be underestimated. Agriculture in particular is dependent upon oil, a fact which has some very frightening implications. What are we doing about it? Not nearly enough. What's desperately needed is a build-out of efficient, alternative sources of energy, like wind and solar and soon. While this is starting to happen, it may be too little, too late. A serious peak oil crisis would mean the absence of energy resources needed to put up the alternative infrastructure in the first place. Even some hardcore environmentalists are flirting with the notion that nuclear power, for all its flaws, may be the only way to address both climate change and the imminent energy crisis without catastrophe. We also need some serious planning at a national and international level, and real money allocated to finding new ways to power the civilization. Unfortunately, in many countries, and especially the US, this is simply not happening. In the meantime, individuals can do their part by driving less, turning down the heat and taking other energy-saving measures. Adding solar panels or a personal wind turbine to your home would be a great idea and it might also be worthwhile to grow a little garden. Eating food shipped from the other side of the world may soon be a thing of the past. disaster meter The website has given this disaster, or potential disaster, a rating of 6 out of 10. Is it going to happen? The questions are when and whether we're doing enough to mitigate The worst possible effects. End of the World Files number four. Pandemic. The basics. Disease has traditionally been Mother Nature's most effective way of keeping human populations in check. From black plague to smallpox to tuberculosis, pandemics, massive outbreaks of infectious disease have killed billions. Science has freed us from many of the plagues that our ancestors knew. But as our population skyrockets, changes the climate and builds strip malls in parts of the planet where we haven't been before, we're uncovering new threats and reviving old ones at an unprecedented rate. Potential Impact A fast-moving outbreak of some new disease could kill millions very quickly, like the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918 that killed between 20 and 40 million people. The World Health Organization in 2007 report on health and security, titled A Safer Future, notes that since the 1970s, newly emerging diseases have been identified at the unprecedented rate of one or more per year. They've also identified more than 1,100 epidemic events around the world since 2002. An epidemic differs from a pandemic in that it affects a smaller region and fewer people. Between November 2002 and July 2003, an outbreak of a never-before-seen disease dubbed Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, threatened to become a pandemic, infecting over 8,000 people on four continents and killing 774 before it was brought under control. Right now, the illness that's considered by many researchers to be the most likely future pandemic is the H5N1 avian influenza virus, or bird flu. An extremely dangerous virus with a high mortality rate, it's thus far only been found in humans who've been in direct contact with chickens or other fowl. However, If a mutation emerged that allowed the virus to jump from human to human, our penchant for jet travel and international migration would send it around the world in days. And that's just one of the diseases we know about. What are we doing about it? Quite a lot. Although the risk of pandemic is real, it's also something that governments take very seriously. The SARS pandemic would have been far worse without international cooperation and outbreaks of the dreaded Ebola virus draw doctors from around the world to deal with them. Research is ongoing on bird flu and other known threats. The Meter. The website rates this one as 5 out of 10. The danger shouldn't be underestimated, but a lot of work is being done to make sure it doesn't happen. End of the World Files, number five, Climate Change, the basics. Anthropogenic, or human-caused climate change, is the current flavour of the week for end-of-the-world scenarios. But Al Gore didn't just invent it. It's something we've all been working on for a few generations, and most scientists agree that it's getting worse. The basic idea is that greenhouse gases, caused largely by burning fossil fuels, are heating up the planet, with unpredictable, but likely unpleasant side effects for living things. Potential Impact Depends who you ask. Because climate is a complex beast and still not well understood, ideas about what could happen and when are all over the map. The closest thing to a consensus is probably the International Panel on Climate Change, a group of climate researchers working under the auspices of the United Nations. They predict that by 2020 we'll be seeing much more extreme weather than today as well as widespread drought, desertification and loss of agricultural land with a ripple effect of millions of environmental refugees. By the middle of the century they also predict major flooding of low-lying areas around the world, some of them heavily populated. Keep in mind that the IPCC is a relatively conservative group And there are other voices out there predicting even more catastrophic outcomes, such as a complete collapse of human civilization. You decide who you want to believe. What are we doing about it? Not nearly enough. In spite of the fact that the IPCC has declared human-caused climate change unequivocal, greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise. Climatologist Stephen Schneider of Stanford University an IPCC lead author has said, we are 25 years too late. If the object is to avoid dangerous change, we've already had it. The object now is to avoid really dangerous change. As the planet slips into the deep fryer, world leaders hold fruitless bickering sessions in Kyoto and most recently Bali. Where the most they can agree on is that at some future point, they will try to agree on something. With national governments mostly unable or unwilling to address the problem, it's up to individual and communities to take action. Fortunately, there's plenty we can do at the grassroot level. Every action we take to conserve energy and reduce greenhouse gases helps. The disaster meter. The website rates this as 8 out of 10. This one is the real deal. And it's happening now. Now, if you visit my website, www.bizarrebizarre.info origins, uh, there is a link to this greendaily.com website. And on this page, there is a gallery suggesting 12 ways that we can stop global warming. End of the world files. Feeling depressed yet? Chances are all that talk of doom and gloom has you a trifle stressed out. After all, who wants to sit around thinking about how humanity is destroying itself? Sounds like you need a beer. But remember, your environmental impact is directly related to climate change, which is on the brink of killing us all. So drink away those apocalyptic concerns with a nice, cool, sustainable brew. Now, if you go to this website in the show notes, they have a green beer guide, as well as their top seven greenest cartoons. From Captain Planet to Lisa Simpson to Hank Hill, we picked the most eco-friendly cartoons.
1: It up and head back home. you the I'm and I could be you to stay and let me be
0: the
1: one. Could of you stay and,
0: be mine, and now for something a little lighter. Huh, maybe not so lighter. Where does the expression abandon all hope? Ye who enter here come from. Warning about a no win situation, this expression comes from Dante's Inferno. The actual expression was All hope abandon, ye who enter here. The here refers to hell.
1: Oh, Stay and let me be the one.
0: The music from today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network. And I'd like to thank the Podsafe Music Network and their artists for allowing me to use their music in my podcast without royalties. Thank you. The following story comes from the Telegraph.co.uk site and it's written by Roger Highfield, who is their science editor. And it's entitled "Self-Cleaning Wool and Silk Developed Using Nanotechnology." Good news for those who hate washing socks, are worried about hygiene, or resent spending money on dry cleaning. Self-cleaning forms of wool and silk have been developed with the help of nanotechnology. Wool. Socks, skirts, and silk ties may soon clean themselves of smells and stains in the sunshine, researchers in Australia and China suggest. The secret is a nanoparticle coating, one already used to keep windows clear, that could lead to self cleaning versions of wool and silk fabrics. Wool and silk, which are composed of natural proteins called keratins, are among the most prized and widely used fabrics in the clothing industry. However, they are difficult to keep clean and are easily damaged by conventional cleaning agents. In the new study scheduled for publication in the journal Chemistry of Materials, Dr. Walid Daoud of Monash University Victoria in Australia and colleagues prepared wool fabrics with and without nanoparticle coating. Particles around 5 nanometers across or 5 billionths of a metre composed of anatase titanium dioxide, a substance already used as a pigment that is known to break down and destroy contaminants under exposure to sunlight. The self-cleaning technology in our work uses titanium dioxide photocatalyst that when triggered by light, it decomposes dirt, stains, harmful microorganisms and so on, says Dr. Dawood. The researchers then stain the fabric samples with red wine. After 20 hours of exposure to simulated sunlight, the coated fabric showed almost no signs of the red stain, whereas the untreated fabric remained deeply stained, the researchers say. The coating, which is non-toxic, can be permanently bonded to the fibre and does not alter its texture and feel, they note, so a silk tie would still feel silky. The tricky part of the research was finding a way to bind the keratin to the titanium dioxide, he says. Applying a ceramic inorganic material to organic fibres, in particular keratin protein fibres such as wool silk, hemp and spider silk, remained a challenge. After a chemical reaction to activate the surface of the fibres, the team found it could make the titanium dioxide crystals stick. As for when self-cleaning socks could be on the market, Dr. Dawood tells The Telegraph, It is anticipated that as soon as the technology receives the approval, technically and economically, you will then be able to see this product in the market. Currently, industrial testing and mill trials of this patent pending technology are being conducted. He adds, I believe that self-cleaning property will become a standard feature of future textile and other commonly used materials to maintain hygiene and prevent the spreading of pathogenic infection, particularly since pathogenic microorganisms can survive on textile surfaces for up to three months. Self-cleaning technology can also help in reducing the consumption of chemicals such as detergent and dry cleaning solvents, water and energy. The following story comes from the CNRS International Magazine website and it's a story from history and it's entitled The Double Life of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Since the extraordinary discovery made between 1947 and 1956 of the 900 odd Dead Sea Scrolls in 11 caves at Qumran in the West Bank, paleographers, religion historians and other specialists have tried to determine their origins. The identity and motivations of the depositors remains a mystery, but we now know that the scrolls come from two distinct sources. This adds another piece to a puzzle that contains tens of thousands of text fragments originating between 300 BC and 70 AD. During their initial discovery, the texts were rapidly identified by researchers as fragments of the Bible, known as apocryphal texts, and the text's from the numerous sects who coexisted with Judaism during a period when there was no unified form of religion. Different types of texts were found in each cave, explains Daniel Stokel Ben Ezra, the religion historian at the centre, Paul Albert Favier, who recently uncovered the scroll's different origins. The distribution is about the same in each cave, and as a result, researchers have for a long time assumed that all the texts were part of the same collection. There remained the question of why the texts had been placed in the caves in the desert. Had they been taken out of Jerusalem for protection before the Romans attacked the city between 68 and 70 BC? This is one theory, but in that case, the absence of Pharisian texts, a well-represented sect in Jerusalem at the time, is peculiar. The study of the pottery tombs and other archaeological clues at the site has convinced most researchers that this is the work of an isolated group that lived at the site, but whose identity is still under debate. It could have been before an attack. The group was probably in a hurry when they hid the texts in the caves, some of which are very difficult to access, says Stokel Ben Ezra. But something has always mystified me. No one has ever looked into the distribution of the texts according to age, and Stokel Ben Ezra's curiosity is well-founded. Two of the caves contain very large numbers of scrolls, which are on average 50 years older than the ones in the other caves. It seems strange to think that the inhabitants of Qumran would have taken the time to organise the texts as they were hiding them, says the researcher. Intrigued by the situation, Stokel ben Ezra carried out a mathematical study of the distribution of texts with the help of a statistician. The Kruskal-Wallace test and the random simulation they used to redistribute the texts a thousand times in the Eleven Caves both prove that the actual distribution of texts is statistically very unlikely. There must have been two collections of books, one younger and one older, he concludes. The results of the study have been published in the journal Dead Sea Discoveries last October. We now have to come up with other developments in our hypothesis to explain the coexistence of the two libraries. And now for the episode, Word Origins. This comes from wordorigins.org. When examining the origins of a word, one must be careful to distinguish between the word and the thing itself. The origin of the word is quite often different from the origin of the thing that it represents. Such is the case with baseball. In this case, the word is much older than the game we know today by that name. The first recorded use of baseball is from 1744, appearing in John Newbery's A Little Pretty Pocket Book*, which was one of the first children's books ever published. The book, originally published in London, but reprinted several times in the United States, contains the following poem. B is for Baseball, the ball once struck off, away flies the boy, to the next destined post, and then home with joy. The game described in Newbury's book bears little resemblance to the modern game of baseball other than the use of a ball and bases. Judging from the picture that accompanies the poem, they didn't even use a bat, instead striking the pitched ball with the hand. But despite the differences, this game of English baseball is clearly the progenitor of the modern game.
1: Another night in a sleepless town. He lays his soul and his whiskey down.
0: Uh, Now from the Gizmodo website, from their science section, a little article that's entitled Tattoos Might Be the Best Way to Deliver a Cancer Vaccine. If you've ever considered getting a tattoo, it's probably for aesthetic purposes. That's all well and good, but in the near future, getting a tattoo might be the best way to deliver vaccines. So if you go in for a new ink job, you could also protect yourself from any number of diseases, including some cancers. Some vaccines, when injected traditionally, fail to produce the necessary immune response. Researchers in Germany have found that by using a vibrating tattoo needle they can get the optimal results. In tests on mice, using a tattoo needle produces 16 times more antibodies than by using a simple injection into muscle tissue. It may be tied to the greater damage to the body that the tattoo needle produces. It certainly would be interesting to have a permanent reminder of just when and how you were made immune from terrible, life ending diseases. It would just suck, however, to be forced into getting a tat in order to get the vaccine. Time will tell whether or not this becomes a viable and widespread technique.
1: When his
0: mother was and another one of my little numerical articles. I did one in the one or two in the last episode, and I found another one at www.edge.org, and it's entitled when the world's greatest scientific thinkers change their minds. History shows that famous thinkers also get it wrong, and they admit it. From particle physics to evolutionary theory, to the atomic bomb, to global warming, to the battle of the sexes, to the equality of human beings, to God and the paranormal, and to the dogmatism of scientists themselves. Dozens of the big thinkers in the world explained online at the start of 2008 what the most important things that they've changed their minds about during their lives are. The project takes place on the website www.edge.org, a kind of informal think tank, a forum of ideas and scientific debates, which asks such questions annually online and later publishes the results in book form. Number 1. The Atomic Bomb Won the War Freeman Dyson, renowned physicist and mathematician, Princeton's Institute of Advanced Study. I changed my mind about an important historical question. Did the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki bring World War II to an end? Until this year, I used to say, perhaps. Now, because of new facts, I say, no. Number two. We have stopped evolving. Steven Pinker, experimental psychologist... Harvard University. Ten years ago I wrote, are we still evolving? Biologically, probably not much. The completion of the Human Genome Project was several years away, but new results have suggested that thousands of genes, perhaps as much as 10% of the human genome, have been under strong recent selection, and the selection may have even accelerated during the past several thousand years. Currently, evolutionary psychology assumes that any adaptation to post-agricultural ways of life are 100% cultural. If these results hold up and apply to psychologically relevant brain function, then that simplifying assumption might have to be reconsidered. Number three, the paranormal exists. Susan Blackmore, psychologist, consultant to the journal Skeptical Inquirer. When I was a student at Oxford in 1970, I became fascinated with occultism, mediumship and the paranormal. I did the experiments. I tested telepathy, precognition and clairvoyance. I got only chance results. I trained fellow students in imagery techniques and tested them again, chance results. I tested twins in pairs, chance results. I worked in play groups and nursery schools with very young children. Their naturally telepathic minds are not yet warped by education, you see. Chance results. I trained as a tarot reader and tested the readings. Chance results. I was lying in the bath trying to fit my latest null results into paranormal theory when it occurred to me for the very first time that I might have been completely wrong and my tutors were right. Perhaps there were no paranormal phenomena at all. I had hunted ghosts and poltergeists trained as a witch, attended spiritualist churches, and stared into crystal balls. But all of that had to go. Once the decision was made, it was actually quite easy. Number four, we are all equal. Simon Baron-Cohen, psychologist, Autism Research Centre, Cambridge University. When I was young, I believed in equality as a guiding principle in life. My mind has been changed. I still believe in some aspects of the idea of equality, but I can no longer accept the whole package. Striving to give people equality of social opportunity is still a value system worth defending. But we have to accept that equality has no place in the realm of biology. Number five. The obligation of a scientist to do science. Leon Letterman, Nobel Laureate in Physics. Author of The God Particle. I have always believed that the scientist's most sacred obligation is to continue to do science. Now I know that I was dead wrong. I am driven to the ultimately wise advice of my Columbia mentor, I.I. Rabbi, who, in our many corridor bull sessions, urged his students to run for public office and get elected. He insisted that to be an advisor... He was an advisor to Oppenheimer at Los Alamos, later to Eisenhower and to the AEC, was ultimately an exercise in futility, and that the power belonged to those who are elected. Then, we thought, the old man was bonkers. But today, a Congress which is overwhelmingly dominated by lawyers and MBAs makes no sense in this 21st century, in which almost all issues have a science and technology aspect. Number six. Men are at the top because they are smarter. Helena Cronin, philosopher, London School of Economics. I used to think that these patterns of sex differences resulted mainly from average differences between men and women in innate talents, tastes and temperaments. After all, in talents, men are on average more mathematical, more technically minded, women more verbal. In tastes, men are more interested in things, women in people. In temperaments, men are more competitive, risk-taking, single-minded, status-conscious. Women are far less so. But I have now changed my mind. It is not a matter of averages, but of extremes. Females are much of a muchness, clustering round the mean. But among males, the variance, the difference between the most and the least, the best and the worst, can be vast, some males are almost bound to be overrepresented both at the bottom and at the top. I think of this as more dumbbells, but more nobels. Number seven. It is possible to unify the forces of physics. Marcelo Gleiser, Brazilian physicist and astronomer, Dartmouth College. I was always fascinated by the idea of unification of the forces of nature. I wrote dozens of papers related to the subject of unification. Even my Ph.D. dissertation was on the topic. I was fascinated by the modern approaches to the idea: supersymmetry, superstrings, a space with extra hidden dimensions. A part of me still is. But then, a few years ago, I started to started to doubt unification, finding it to be the scientific equivalent of a monotheistic formulation of reality. A search for God revealed in equations. Of course, had we the slightest experimental evidence in favour of unification, of supersymmetry, of superstrings, I'd be the first popping the champagne open. But it's been over 20 years, and all attempts so far have failed. Number 8. Global warming is not an urgent problem. Craig Venter, Human Genome Decoder, J. Craig Venter Institute. Like many, or perhaps most, I wanted to believe that our oceans and atmosphere were basically unlimited sinks with an endless capacity to absorb the waste products of human existence. I wanted to believe that solving the carbon fuel problem was for future generations and that the big concern was the limited supply of oil, not the rate of adding carbon to the atmosphere. The data is irrefutable. We are conducting a dangerous experiment with our planet, one we need to stop, now. Number nine. Humans emerged because they began to eat meat. Richard Wrangham, British anthropologist, student of Jane Goodall, Harvard University. I used to think that human origins were explained by meat eating, but now I think that cooking was the major advance that made us human. Cooked food allows our guts, teeth and mouths to be small, while giving us abundant food energy and freeing our time. Cooked food, of course, requires the control of fire. And a fire at night explains how Homo erectus dared sleep on the ground. So, in a roast potato and a hunk of beef, we have a new theory of what made us human. Number 10. Races do not exist. Mark Pagel. Evolutionary Biologist, Reading University. There is an overbearing censorship to the way we are allowed to think and talk about the diversity of people on Earth. Officially, we are all the same. There are no races. Flawed as the old ideas about race are, modern genomic studies reveal a surprising, compelling and different picture of human genetic diversity. What this all means is that, like it or not, There may be many genetic differences among human populations, including differences that may even correspond to the old categories of race, that there are real differences in the sense of making one group better than another at responding to some particular environmental problem. This in no way says one group is in general superior to the other, or that one group should be preferred over another but it warns us that we must be prepared to discuss genetic differences among human populations. Just a reminder that if you'd like to read the internet articles that I've used in this program today, if you go to my website, www.bizarrebizarre.info forward slash origins, you'll find links to them in the show notes. Also, if you have an article or you'd like to give me some feedback or constructive criticism, you can email me at Rex. that's p-a-u-l-r-e-x at paulrex.com. And a reminder today that the background music for today's show came from the Podsafe Music Network. The following article comes from the damninteresting.com website and it's entitled The Plane That Flew Too Soon and it was written by Matt Castle. Early one Sunday morning in September 1949, throngs of people started to gather around the runway of the Bristol Aeroplane Company factory in the west of England. Curious Bristolians occupied every vantage point, while workers and their families crowded into special enclosures alongside the airfield. The 10,000 or so bystanders were joined by 250 reporters from all corners of the globe, all present in anticipation of an historic event. The message had gone out It's going to be today. A huge contraption lay poised on the threshold of the runway a flying machine far larger than any that the ordinary onlooker would have seen before. With elegant curves and a smooth, stressed metal skin, she looked impressive enough But there may have been doubts among the spectators regarding the aircraft's ability to leave the ground. Many had watched the giant plane incessantly track back and forth along the runway over the last two days, with no sign of a take-off. But now the taxi trials were complete. At ten o'clock their patience was finally rewarded. To the throaty roar of eight powerful Centaurus piston engines and the delight of the crowd, the Bristol Brabazon, the largest and most advanced airliner of its day, sped down the runway and took to the air for the very first time. As the graceful behemoth slipped the surly bonds of the earth, it's said that the captain, test pilot Bill Pegg, uttered the words, "'Good God, it works!' But for all of the splendour surrounding its maiden voyage, the massive aircraft soon relegated to the scrap heap of aviation history. Back on the ground, it's likely that a group of increasingly disgruntled British government accountants watched the flight with a somewhat blunted sense of euphoria. For as well as being vast, the aircraft was proving vastly expensive and the joyous occasion of its first flight was at least two years overdue. Yet when the Brabazon took to the air, the hopes and expectations of an exhausted and war-shattered Britain were lifted with it. Absurdly ambitious in concept and execution, the Bristol Brabazon was destined to carry more people faster, further, higher and in greater comfort than any plane that had flown before. Its most obvious feature was its size. At the time of its first flight, it was the largest land-based aircraft in the world, dwarfing all other airliners. Comparisons with typical transport aircraft of the time are revealing. The Brabazon had well over twice the wingspan, nearly three times the length and eight times the weight of the well-known Douglas DC-3. The Brab also flew higher and faster, with an unparalleled range and carrying capacity. While newer variants of pre-existing planes, such as the Lockheed Constellation, had already brought advances such as pressurised cabins to the airlines, the Brabazon was the first passenger aircraft purpose-built to incorporate such features. Its unique combination of complexity, performance, high technology and unheard-of size was to remain unrivalled for nearly two decades. The Bristol Brabazon design, like most large-scale projects of its era, was born out of the Second World War. In 1942, the British and American governments decided to divide responsibility for Allied aircraft production. The Americans would focus on building air transports, while the British would concentrate on delivering large numbers of combat aircraft. Even as the conflict raged in Europe, it soon became clear that this plan would leave Britain at a post-war technological disadvantage, as highlighted by a 1943 British Air Ministry committee chaired by Lord Brabazon of Tara. The committee's far-sighted report urged the development of a large transatlantic airliner to secure the needs of a post-war British commerce and industry. In response, the Bristol Aircraft Company reworked a previously abandoned design for a long-range heavy bomber to produce the imposing Brabazon concept. The company benefited from this apparent head start by eventually receiving £12 million of government money for the project. Much was riding on the endeavour, the future of the company, the livelihoods of the factory workers and suppliers in Bristol. Britain's reputation as a technological leader in aeronautical design, and ultimately, many believed, the renaissance of the nation's civil aircraft manufacturing industry. An aircraft as ambitious as a Brabazon demanded novel construction techniques and a flurry of technical advances. Such a large airplane risked a serious weight problem, so engineers went to unprecedented lengths to strip excess metal from the design without sacrificing its structural strength. This foreshadowed the fine tolerances and optimal manufacturing processes standard in the aircraft construction industry today. A new hangar had to be built. With its 230-foot wingspan, Greater than any modern aircraft liner, apart from the Airbus's new superjumbo a three eighty existing facilities at the factory were hopelessly deficient. The eight coupled contra rotating propellers were driven by eight paired engines buried in the wing close to the fuselage to improve drag and allow space for the outboard fuel tanks. Like many later aircraft, the Brabazon featured technologies such as electric engine controls, high-pressure hydraulics to operate the flying surfaces, and cabin pressurisation. The aircraft was initially designed to accommodate 80 passengers with sleeping berth accommodation or 150 people for daytime flights, inconsiderably more luxury than most modern aircraft can offer. Proposed cabin designs included provision for lounges, cocktail bars and cinemas. Although the prototype had old-fashioned piston engines, the turboprops on the anticipated production version could maintain a top speed of 330 miles per hour. This would allow a transatlantic flight time of about 12 hours, which was not unreasonable compared to its contemporaries. As it turned out, test pilot Bill Pegg's surprise during the maiden flight was misplaced. The Brabazon did indeed work. Its performance comfortably matched specifications, and although some strengthening was deemed necessary around the propeller mountings, the design was free of serious problems. Test pilots delighted in the aircraft's pleasant flying characteristics, while test passengers enthused about the smooth ride and spacious interior. The experience was a far cry from the buttock-numbing bumpiness of the older generation of piston-engine airliners. It seemed certain that the Bristol Aircraft Company had hit at a hit on its hands. But despite an impressive run of displays on the international airshow circuit, no airlines were interested in buying the design. The second prototype never made it off the production line, and in 1953, the world's first and only Bristol Brabazon, the high-flying luxury liner of the future, was unceremoniously scrapped. In terms of size, expense and commercial success, the aircraft invites comparison to another giant post-war aeronautical creation, Howard Hughes's magnificently misconceived monster, the H4 Hercules or Spruce Goose. But whereas the Hercules flying wooden boat was a collection of dead-end technologies that seemed destined for failure, the Brabazon embodied anything but backwardness a more appropriate comparison could be made with the comparably-sized, ultra-successful Boeing 747. It shared the Brabazon's lightweight all-metal construction, pressurised cabin and hydraulic flight controls. Yet this archetypical modern jumbo jet was not to fly for another 20 years. Today, most commentators trace the Brabazon's failure to the British aircraft's industry's poor understanding of post-war market conditions. Despite its cutting-edge technology, the Brabazon was outfitted in the style of a luxurious 1930s ocean liner, with pre-war air passengers in mind, wealthy industrialists, super-rich tourists or civil servants on urgent government business demanding high levels of comfort. Although it was approximately the same size and weight as the modern 747, the Brabazon was designed to carry only a 100-odd passengers compared to the Boeing's 300-plus capacity. All this combined to make the type profoundly uneconomical. At the same time, smaller but faster turbojet-powered airliners were in development, and it was felt that passengers would readily sacrifice the extra space and comfort of the Brabazon for a quicker journey. <coughs> With better marketing and an increased passenger capacity, the bristol Brabazon might have been successful. Yet the concept of mass air travel was alien to populations on both sides of the Atlantic in the late 1940s. One or two British airlines flirted with the aircraft, but ultimately deemed her too costly and high maintenance for their purposes. Europe was too impoverished, while America was busy developing her own advanced airliners such as the Boeing 707. Aircraft procurement tended to take place along national lines, and it was crucial that the Brabazon gained orders from a British airline if it was to succeed. When this failed to happen, its fate was sealed. It seems likely that the Brabazon's futuristic features and large size were an integral part of its undoing. When the 747 took to the skies at the end of the swinging 60s, the travelling public were earning more and aspiring to join the jet set. In short, the world was waiting for such an aircraft. The immense aircraft offered technologies and amenities which were simply not in demand. The world was not yet ready. Today, of course, many more people appreciate the comfort and convenience of modern air travel, and passenger numbers are increasing year by year. New aircraft, such as the A380 are beginning to reintroduce luxuries such as sleeping berths, cocktail bars and casinos. Yet, Few from these ever-growing throngs of flyers are even aware of the plane that pioneered many of the technologies they enjoy and depend upon, the plane that demonstrated what was possible. Complex yet chic, gargantuan yet graceful, the Bristol Brabazon was a spectacular and larger-than-life girl of the 60s, sadly fated to fly out her days in the austere setting of post-war Britain, at least a decade ahead of her time.
1: A bright blue sky. To
0: For our final article today, I'd like to do another one from Panartis, Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, that great little book that cost me 98 cents, plus twelve ninety-five delivery. Electric Blankets, 1930s, United States. Man's earliest electric blankets were animal skins or choice fleeces, as they are referred to in the Odyssey. But our word blanket derives from a later date and a different kind of bed covering. French bed linens and bed clothes during the Middle Ages consisted largely of undyed woolen cloth, white in colour and called blanquette, from blanc, meaning white. In time the word evolved to blanket, and it was used solely for the uppermost bed covering. The first substantive advance in blankets from choice fleeces occurred in this century, and as a spin-off from a medical application of electricity. In 1912, while large areas of the country were still being wired for electric power, American inventor S.I. Russell patented an electric heating pad to warm the chests of tubercular sanitarium patients reclining outdoors. It was a relatively small square of fabric with insulating heating coils wired throughout and it cost a staggering $150. Almost immediately, the possibility for larger bed-sized electric blankets was appreciated. But cost, technology and safety were obstacles until the mid-1930s. The safety of electric blankets remained an issue for many years. In fact, most refinements to date involved generating consistent heat without risking fire. One early advance involved surrounding heating elements with non-flammable plastics, a spin-off of World War II research into perfecting electrically heated flying suits for pilots. I caught you seeing a lifetime in my eyes
1: I travel planets in search of you tonight You're all of my desires wrapped in a single sun all I want is a chair, shine with you, babe. Love makes the whole world one, baby.
0: That concludes episode nine of Origins. Episode ten will be along in a few days. Um, If you have time, it would be great if you could visit the TalkShoe website, www.talkshoe.com, or uh, visit the Origins podcast site on iTunes and post some feedback about my site. Uh, I know I'm getting downloads for these stories, but I'd just be interested to find out what you think, what you like, what you don't like. If you get a chance, please give it a go. Bye for now.
1: you the stars like a kiss into the night You're all of my desires Wrapped in a single sun All I want is a chance to shine With you, babe, love makes the whole world one turning from above The earth adrift on a blue sky sea of love Let's toss the clouds into oceans with our light And steal the stars like a kiss into the night You're all of my desires wrapped in a sink of sun All I want is a chance to shine with you, baby. Love makes the whole world